we'll both speak quite softly. Oh. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. We're going to be speaking about respect today. So I'll let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Beth, and thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, my name is Christy Kisselson, and I'm a research fellow at James Cook University in Cairns. Uh, I'm originally from Melbourne, and I studied uh, my, under, my undergraduate degree in English literature at um, Murdoch University in Perth. And then I went on to do my um, PhD in philosophy at the University of Tasmania. I studied at University of Tasmania as well. How about that? That's right. I remember you saying, and Lucy Tapman was my co-supervisor. Yeah, she was excellent. We, I think we were both very fortunate to get such a good um, lecturer at um, UTAS. So um, what was it that inspired you to study RESPECT? Thank you for asking, Beth. Um, when I um, was studying my undergraduate degree in, in, in literature, I did do a bit of philosophy as well. And there were two subjects that really uh, stood out to me. One was um, on First Nations literature, and the other one was a philosophy subject called moral and political philosophy. And as I was um, studying First Nations literature, I noticed that the, the, the philosophical uh, paradigm or the, the literary framework that was being applied to literature at the time, it was very postmodern and post-structuralist. And it had uh, a couple of different effects. One was that uh, some postmodernists were saying that uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, um, that if they're writing in English, then they're not really authentic. They're not expressing their uh, Aboriginality or their in indigeneity. And that to, so to write in English meant that it undermined their identity. So someone like Ruby Langford Ginneby with Don't Take Your Love to Town, she, she, it was being suggested that she wasn't being authentically Aboriginal. And on the other hand, uh, I came across a post-structuralist um, philosopher called Bill Readings, um, and he was suggesting that he was trying to, um, in, in one way, really respect uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander difference. But to do so, he was saying that we should not even consider First Nations peoples as human, that they are so different that we shouldn't even see them as human. And so these, these um, ideas, these ways of interpreting First Nations literature really uh, struck me and uh, galvanised me to study philosophy, to try and come up with a way in which we could both respect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander claims to sameness, that we, are, that they, that we share a common humanity, but also difference, that they, they have a different identity. Yeah, well, it wasn't all that long ago, really, that um, Indigenous and Torres Strait Islanders got the vote, was it? Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so in different states, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples did have the vote. So in South Australia, they actually had the vote in the middle of the 1800s and in Queensland just before the re referendum in 67. But in, in 67 with the referendum, it... Uh, it meant that uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples were counted in the Australian census. And that meant that uh, the federal parliament could then make laws 
regarding them and then they could vote in federal elections yeah 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 no that's that's really important i think it's something we all take for granted isn't it when you absolutely. when you want absolutely yeah so would you have a definition of respect thank you beth i do <laughs> yes i see respect as uh, treating another human being as an end in themselves so not as a means to somebody else's ends not as a, a as a tool um, Aristotle, a couple of thousand years ago, famously defined slaves as tools, as objects to be used for others' ends. And so for me, respect means to see someone as an end in themselves and also as having equal and inherent worth. Now, could you explain about the current questioning about the concept of universalism? Thank you, Beth. Yes. Um, so with, as I mentioned, Aristotle made distinction between some humans who were slaves and some humans who were, uh, who deserved equal respect as humans. And he also came up with the concept of human being as a rational animal. And so the concept of universalism, you can say in regards to how you define human beings, that's one example of how to define human beings, that universally human beings are rational animals and all humans at all times can be recognised by the fact that they're, they're rational. And however, as, as, as you know, throughout history, um, different humans, uh, most notably women, have been classified as a subhuman because they've been seen as being irrational or non-rational. And as you know, Mary Wollstonecraft famously objected to that in her vindication of the rights of women and just after that actually uh, a bloke thomas a bloke came out and said um that it, with with a a pamphlet called a vindication of the rights of brutes where he said that seeing women as rational animals was like seeing um seeing animals as being rational but the, the idea of women being so of being rational was so ridiculous it was like saying that animals are rational and so uh, and so th there have been objections to the, the classification of, of, of humans as, as rational because it's been used to exclude certain people from equal respect. Um, women, Indigenous peoples, uh, peoples um, of different ethnic ethnicities and sexualities as well. That if, if you lack certain criteria, then you are excluded from the realm of equal respect. And, and seen as subhuman. And of course, that's what's, ha what's happening here in Australia with First Nations Australians. They were classified as subhuman, that they didn't have all the trappings of what was then classified as civilization. And, and so treated with, um, not treated with respect. And so uh, very rightly, this concept of universalism um, of certain characteristics or traits that all humans have to have to be classified as human has been questioned. But just with, with Bill Reading's example that I had before, where one, um, some post-structuralists have gone to the other extreme and says, let's get, let's get rid of the concept altogether of a common humanity because it excludes difference. However, in order to actually say that um, it's wrong to exclude humans 
um, from the realm of equal respect. In order to do that, you actually need to have some sort of universal standard as to why we should respect others. And so there is a bit of a contradiction in a lot of post-structuralist thought, because on the one hand, if you, if you get rid of the concept of becoming humanity, of universalism, then you have no standard on which to say that we're all equal and we all deserve respect. So there, there's some of the issues around universalism. Yeah, it sounds like it's along the same lines of people not being respectful to people with disabilities and intellectual disabilities and mental health disabilities as well. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, yes, indeed. And um, in regards to, uh, because I gave one example of um, rationality as a measure of, 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 of equal worth. If you possess rationality, then you're equal. As you know, Peter Singer, um, famously wanted to include animals in the, in, within the realm of, um, of, of equal respect. And he did it on, on the basis of, of pain and pleasure. And because animals feel uh, pain as we do, he then said, famously said that we should include animals within, within the realm of equal respect. However, uh, in doing that, he actually, um, he did that at the cost of, of excluding some uh, humans with disabilities, particularly intellectual disabilities because he 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 uh, suggested that uh, humans because we are rational then we can experience a greater degree of pain um, and because we can anticipate for, for example our deaths and so he said that humans then um, deserve rational humans then deserve a greater level of consideration and respect uh, but that means that those humans who are not rational who have cognitive impairment or down syndrome or in some form of intellectual disability, then are placed on, on the level of animals. And which means that if, if it's for the greater good of society to, to get rid of those people or those animals, then they can be, then they can be uh, killed for the greater good of society. Yeah, well, it's, it's a interesting point when he sort of said that non-human animals don't have the same sense of future that humans do but that's actually has been proven incorrect and I mean even when you look at a squirrel sort of stashing nuts away for the next year I mean if if they had no sense of future they they wouldn't be sort of anticipating surviving through the winter so it, it's interesting how a lot of those things have, have, have actually, well, they've been proven wrong and they've, they've evolved over time as well. Yes, yes. And, and at this point, it's probably a good idea for me to preface all my remarks about animals with, that, um, with the fact that I am a vegan and I, I don't consume animals. Um, however, uh, I do... Uh, I don't do it on the grounds that I see animals as being equal, and um, but I do do it on the grounds of compassion for animals, as our as Cora Diamond put it, of compassion for our fellow mortal um, beings, because I think that um, there are some uh, challenges with with seeing animals as equal to us, um, because a, a lot of theorists, um, Peter Singer, but there's also a few other theorists animal rights series that, that I could I could mention and, and will mention if you want me to 
um, that they don't take into account uh, the huge power imbalance that exists between humans and animals. So in our relationship with animals, we, we basically have all the power in that, in that relationship. And by power, I don't mean brute strength, um, that we're, because some animals are, of course, physically stronger than us and can overpower us. But I mean uh, power in the, in the sense that Hannah Arendt defines it, in that um, uh, power is a collective power that we have when a group of humans act, act together collectively, um, then that is a form of power that we have over animals. And that's really clearly seen in the way that, that we, um, we farm animals for food, you know, very cruelly. And, and so, and because there is that huge power imbalance, it's, I think it's, it's very difficult for us to talk about equality with animals because we can hold them to account if their actions don't please us, we, we can force them to do what we want them to do, but they can't um, they can't demand that sort of accountability from us. And so that's that's why there's um, a discrepancy. For example, um, Martha Nussbaum in her book, Frontiers of Justice, she tries to argue for the equality of animals and for the inclusion of animals within our, our systems of justice. But what that results in is her suggesting that uh, predators, uh, animals that eat other animals, be put in zoos and be forced to eat vegetables. Because it then uh, it's an example of animals being included in our, our moral system. Yeah, I can I can see that's very, very problematic. <laughs> <laughs> now, could you explain about marginalization and depression? Yes, and, and then this, this goes back to um, the concept of universalism, of there being a, a, a universal humanity. And as, as, as we talked about, it's been used to exclude certain, and marginalise human, certain humans from, um, from equal respect. And so basically, for me, marginalisation and oppression occurs when you don't treat another human being as an end in themselves when you just use them as, as a tool for your own for your own use. And so it's not allowing other humans to, to have, not acknowledging that they have equal power and that they have equal respect or not allowing them equal respect or equal power. What is the, oh look, I'll, you have partly answered this, but what is the argument for the inclusion of non-human animals? Yes. Um, well, as I said, I, I have a lot of compassion for for animals, and I th I'm definitely, I, I think that <laughs> we should stop farming them <laughs> in the harmful way that that we do. Absolutely. Um, but I think that the, the key difference between our animals and humans is is this difference in our ontologies, our ways of, of being with each other, that. Um, with other human beings, we have an expectation of, of moral accountability. When other humans uh, harm us, we, we expect, we have this expectation that they should not do that, that they have a choice, that they should decide to do some, something else, that, you know, not harm us, and that they are accountable to us for that wrong. And we um, don't have that relationship of accountability with animals, as I said before, because of that partly because of that huge um, inequality between us. So why is 
an ontological understanding of human beings needed to provide an adequate foundation for the justification of respect for others. That was a mouthful. <laughs> Pause. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. That's an excellent question, Beth. Why indeed? Yes. Well, as I, as I uh, just mentioned before, um, I believe that that it, uh, it needs to be ontological in regards to our way of being because if it's if it's just to do with our biology then then like Peter Singer um, has raised the charge that if we're just saying that humans and animals are different because of our biology then we can be guilty of what he calls speciesism that you know it's just because it, it's the, it's the color of their skin or their fur or that they have gills um, and those are not um, uh, those are not good enough reasons, basically, for, for saying that animals aren't, aren't unequal to us. And so uh, I see um, animals and humans being different in the way uh, in, in that we, are, we have this expectation of moral accountability. For, to be human is to be a member of a moral community. So when a nation invades another nation, and we can see that very clearly with the invasion of Australia, the uh, First Nations people immediately had an expectation that the British who invaded them were morally accountable for them, for what they were doing to them. And, we, and even though uh, come from quite different cultures, different traditions, different social mores, different ethical systems, there was still a recognition in that recognition that the British were, were accountable to them is a recognition that you belong to the same moral community. And I think that we see this across the human uh, community, across the world. There's, if, there's expectation that you just can't do whatever you like to other human beings. There's an expectation of, of moral accountability. And I think this intra-communal um, expectation of moral accountability is that which defines the human community as a moral community. And of course, I don't mean that we're good. When I mean moral, I don't mean that we're good. But by the very fact that we can do bad things to each other and we object to that means that we are a moral community. And so the moment that you say to your enemy, you can't do that to me, <laughs> or you can't do that to us or our nation, is the moment that you recognise that's, that's a person or a group that has the same ontology as you, the same way of being as you. What grounds are needed to justify respect for others? Yes, well, uh, the, I guess these ontological grounds. And, and I think too that uh, along with recognising that um, human beings have expectation, a moral expectation around human beings of accountability for actions, um, there is that ex expectation also of justice that justice should be done. And, and I, that's, I think, really clearly um, illustrated too in this, the Uluru statement from the heart. Uh, there's a, non, a Yolnu word that's used there called uh, makarata. And that's uh, a word, a Yolnu word uh, that means making things right, putting things right between two parties. So it's very much, for me, very similar to the concept of justice. And indeed, First Nations people have been have been demanding justice for many, many, many years now. And 
However, what we also need within this um, relationship of moral accountability, we also need a standard by which we can say, we can judge whether a claim to moral accountability is, is just or not, or is ethical or not. For example, in cultures that have honour, honour cultures where, to, for example, a man might expect, might um, actually kill a woman because she, she's been seen as, as disgracing his culture or affecting his culture. Uh, we, we, I mean, that's a form of accountability, but we, we need to be able to say whether that's a just or an ethical demand for accountability. And I think that we can say that that's not. <laughs> By, because implicit in um, the expectation of moral accountability is a standard. And that standard is that each human being is an end in themselves. So when you say, you can't do that to me, or a, a, a community says to another a community, you should not do that to me, there's the implication there is that you cannot use me as an end to your own means. There's the, an implication there that that humans are equal. And, and I think that, that it's that standard that, that can save us from unjust claims for accountability. And I just also just want to give an uh, acknowledgement here that, um, uh, that this notion of accountability I've, I've based on, um, and his, his name, just Stephen Darvall's work, uh, I don't. I don't use all his work because he very much uh, talks about human beings as being rational, and um, and and does exclude non-rational humans. Uh, but I just want to acknowledge that I've I've built on some aspects of his work there. Yeah, now it's it's interesting because you were speaking about the First Nations people, and we're speaking about respect. And look, one thing that actually has just come to mind is how respectful the First Nations people are of their environment. So I suppose within the realms of respect, I mean, I suppose it's just not human animals, non-human animals. I mean, we can actually include other things in respect, can't we? Uh, yes, and I think I think that um, I, I, I completely hear what you say, and I think that very, absolutely, uh, I've talked with First Nations peoples and tried. I've talked about um, what what they their definition of respect, and I think their definition of respect is a bit different to mine, in that they will they do talk about respecting the environment, um, and also respecting animals, but that they can still eat certain animals though. But they do it with respect, and they do it in a sustainable way. They don't uh, eat or hunt more than than they um, than they need, and 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 also just want to say here too that I, I'm completely fine with that. <laughs> you know, I think that that um, for me, part of uh, not wanting to eat animals is is because of the very cool. Uh, very cruel factoring farming that takes place, but for Indigenous peoples, uh, it, it's quite a, a different. It's quite different their approach to the environment and to and to animals, and and of course, uh, they do see um, some aspects of nature, um, whether you know whether it's what we would see as inanimate objects or animals, as as having personhood as well. Um, yep. So so I, but although I, so I think that. Um, 
definitely there's the notion of of accountability to other per persons within nature within nature um but i've just i think that there is a little bit of a different understanding of of respect that they can they can still uh, hunt an animal and treat it and eat it but with respect and so it's a, it's a bit of a different i don't want just want to make it clear that there's a bit of a different definition of respect there Yes, yeah, you, you're right, because um, what, what was that saying? Was it Linda McCartney who said if abattoirs had glass walls, I think 99% of people would be um, vegetarian or vegan, wouldn't they? Yes. yes, yeah, I think so, yeah, yeah. It's just that we're so, we're, we're so distant from what actually goes on. Yeah, and, and, and definitely I saw a couple of gut-wrenching documentaries on... <laughs> On, fam on factory farming, and that that clinched it for me. <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. That's why I became a vegan. All right. Oh no, that's that's fantastic. That is so good. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? Oh, gee, um, oh, I can't think of anything at the moment. Um, was there anything on the on the question list or? No, no, we've we've gone through gone through that, and I've thrown in a couple of other things. I suppose I'd, I'd just like to end with a quote as well by Jeremy Bentham, who said, "It's it, um, it's it's not the point whether animals can um, think or reason, but can they feel pain?" And I think that's fairly obvious that uh, non-human animals can feel pain. And, uh, you know, probably as much as people can feel pain. And maybe they don't seem like it sometimes because they're not as wussy as people. <laughs> but it's the same level of pain. So I think um, under that uh, rationale that they should receive the same amount of respect, respect as, as what we give to other people. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree that animals feel um, pain, and and which is why I, I don't want to participate in in eating them. But I guess yes, I guess that there's probably that I where I do differ somewhat from you, Beth, in that um, I, um, definitely I think that we should treat animals um, with with compassion, and um, but in in terms of um, placing them on the same level. Of humans, like I know that Tom Reagan tried. He sort of had that. I'm sure you're familiar with this philosophy that everything is equal and and um, uh, everything has inherent worth. But I guess it's it just becomes hard then to know um, whether the life of a mosquito or a virus bearing mosquito is on the same level as as a human being. And although it seems, you know, it would seem obvious. But in terms of trying to justify that philosophically, in terms of giving us the standard by which we can then justify respect for other beings, like that's why with the, with the notion of, a, of moral accountability, we, in, in that standard is, is that um, humans are an end, end to themselves. So it's just trying to find, and I think that with, with new materialist philosophies as well, um, so um, with uh, Rosie Bredotti, her work in the post-human. Uh, again, she's trying to wrestle and kind of trying to come up with 
a way in which you can have respect for all creatures. And what she introduces is the notion that um, Spinoza's monism, basically. But whereas Spinoza says that, you know, that everything has the same substance. And that because everything has the same substance, therefore everything, uh, you need to res respect it. But um, for Spinoza, of course, he saw the same substance as God. And because uh, Berdotti wants to introduce a secular justification for respect, she then um, she then introduces the notion of, of vitalism, or, or that that within that there's a, a like a life force. Um, and and she, uh, she, however, the notion of vitalism was has been quite discredited, discredited within biology. That there is because it's really difficult to see to find you know a vital element that you could call life, and then there's also so that there's a problem in in justifying that that her theory in that sense, but there's also a problem of of um, justifying her theory in terms of uh, she says okay we we, we should ex respect everything because it has life in it, but but yet we could also say well if you if you look at nature there is a lot of death as well. And so she can't justify why we can say that, say, life should be valued more than death. And indeed, at one point in, in her book, she ends up saying that, okay, death, uh, death is actually just a continuance of life. And it's just, you know, we just go from life to death. It's just the same thing. And it's just a continuance. However, in saying that, how then can we say that someone murdering another human being is wrong? because if death is just the same as life. So we then have a problem of, of, uh, of, of setting standards. If death is just another expression of life, then why is killing another human being wrong? And what? because and, and we can see that in nature too, and, and some animals eat other animals in order to survive, and organisms consume other organisms to survive. And so we then have a, a problem of justifying um, re respect for others and, and what sort of respect we need to provide others as well. That's a that's a really good point. And I, I would say I don't have a problem if a mosquito is biting me, I will swat it because I think it's self-defence. Yeah. So, no, but it, it's, yeah, very interesting points that you've brought up. Well, it's been great having you on the program today. Thanks so much, Beth. It's been a real privilege. Thank you so much for asking me. And I've been speaking with... Christy Gisselson. <laughs> about respect. Well, that's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought. And do stay tuned for Swing and Sway. Right. I'm still here. Yep. I've, yep. Just downloaded, I've just had to go quickly and um, end it and download it and, and save it. Yes, that was good. I thought with the hands you'd get the idea, like say your name again. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it funny? You can have the same questions and do the same interview and it just comes out so differently. When you started talking about that, I thought, 